good morning, everybody. It is Saturday. When is today? Uh, October 3rd. <laughs> yeah. Hey, if you're going to start that way, start with information. October 3rd, 2020. Uh, good morning. Good morning. So I've had some stuff going on here. I'm, I'm trying to balance. Man, I'm still trying really hard to balance some of this audio. It's it's being a little bit of a pain. I'm not going to lie. I've been trying to make sure things are, are loud enough. I'm don't even know that we changed anything, but for some odd reason, I'm watching the levels. And so if it's if it's not quite loud enough, if we're coming quiet, just message in there and I'll, I'll see if I can get it turned up and everything. But I think we should be okay. I think. Well, we'll find out. Anyway, so good morning. We're into study number two of Nehemiah. Study number two, we're going to go through chapter two today. So Nehemiah is a little longer than the other books that we've done so far here at Sip and Study. Um, Not only is it a little longer, but there's... Everything we've done up to this point has been in the New Testament. And so we reference back to a lot of the Old Testament and go over some other things. With this, though, uh, we're in the Old Testament. And so there, there is some referencing back, but there's not a ton of referencing back, if that makes sense, right? I'm trying to make some quick adjustments here real fast because I'm not happy with the settings I'm seeing. Okay, so we're, we're doing some things back, right? But not a ton. And so we're, we're going through a lot of the actual history, things that happened, um, and, and just going with the story and, and gleaning what we can from the story because there's a lot to glean. And I'm not even saying that we're gleaning everything possible, but we're, we're gleaning the gist and the main po- points and portions of this story here. So some of this we're going to go through a little bit more than we normally do. Some of it just a little faster, some of it a little slower. Um, but just enjoy the ride. It's a good, this is a great book of the Bible. Lots of fantastic information in here. Okay, so this is, how long will you be gone? Because if you remember last week when we did the first chapter of Nehemiah, so Nehemiah, I, and we can infer this, it's not in the text, but it's pretty clear. You know, when God calls on our lives and and it's something big, it's not, not necessarily, hey, give a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge or something like that. You know, it's not a, a word giving or, or something quick like just give the guy a $5 bill, whatever. If it's something life-changing and life-altering, um, if it's something like that, then a lot of times it hits and it's, it's, it feels like, uh, it's a lot of, a lot of stuff. I'm not sure. Was that, was that God or a bad burrito last night? You know? And, and so you just kind of like dig into it and you wrestle with it until you come to realization that no, God really is calling. And we saw that where his brother came back and, and then he, he mourned for, for months and prayed day and night for months. And, and now we're getting on into the story to where he, he goes and he's talking to the king. Remember, chapter one ended directly with him saying, and I was the cupbearer to the king. Now, a cupbearer is kind of a big ordeal. You're an important person. Your job is to, one, yes, serve the king wine and drink when the king is thirsty. But realistically, your job is to keep the king alive. If that cup is poisoned, it's on you. So you're supposed to take care of it and take charge over it and make sure nothing happens to the wine. You're supposed to taste it, make sure it's okay, the king's going to like it, know his tastes, and make sure that it's not poisoned. So if it is poisoned, you die, not him, right? So this is kind of a, it's, it's a... It's an official position, but it's an, it is an important position because your job is to keep the king alive. 
Okay, so it's not a fun position because your life is constantly in danger and in jeopardy because if the king's upset, you could easily go, right? But it is an important position nonetheless. Oop, I'm on the wrong thing. All right, here we go. Told you, new computer, same game. It's fine. All right, so let's read Nehemiah chapter two. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now we'll, we'll go back. We'll go into that when we get to the details, right? When wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And when I had given him a time and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, the let, <clears throat> let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of God was upon me. Take a second to soak that in, right? Wow. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, armed escort. That's pretty cool. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, so servant of Sanballat, and yes, I'm saying this as white as possible, just for everyone's enjoyment, it's fine, uh, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days, then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and I entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were there to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sunballat the Horonite 
and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So there's a lot, a lot in here, a lot going on, a lot, a lot. Okay, so this is a pretty packed chapter of stuff. I get a lot of information. We're going to go through it pretty quickly, though, so don't, don't worry. This breaks up into two basic sections. First of all, he gets permission. Gets permission and goes. And then lastly, we see the first signs of opposition. And I say first signs because it's the first signs of opposition. Okay. So let's get into this. First of all, we have in the month of Nisan. Now, Nisan is in this calendar and their calendar would be uh, what we would call March or April, between March and April, right? So remember when he got word, it was November, December. So it's been four months, okay? It's still the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, which means it's not looked at as like calendar year, but this is year from when he uh, when he took office, right? When he had his dad assassinated and, and got the throne. So it's been... Uh, still in the 20th year of his reigning. Now we're in the month of Nisan, which is four months, give or take, um, since he got the news of how Jerusalem and Judah are, how the people are, that they're demolished, that the gates are all burned. Now, when they say burned, I want you guys to realize when they burn the gates, it is to ruin the structural integrity so that that can't be used again. You have to completely tear it down and start over from scratch. You can't use anything that's there. Because anything that's there is no longer valuable. It's no longer good. It doesn't work right. You could probably use it, but somebody hits it pretty hard and it falls over, right? So you have to start over. Okay, so it's been four months. And he says, I had not been sad. So when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to him. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Realize that he has not been sad in the presence of the king in four months months. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So king's noticing, why are you sad? You know, you haven't been sad because let's be honest. Um, it's not a good idea when your job is to make sure that the king stays alive, <laughs> being sad in his presence by giving it while giving him a drink, probably not wise. Okay, so he's been mourning for four months without showing it, without telling anybody about it. He's been praying day and night without telling anybody else about it. And Artaxerxes shows some discernment and wisdom by recognizing that he's not ill, right? You can tell you're not sick. What's going on? And he shows some compassion. At least the best we can tell, he shows compassion. He was either showing compassion for Nehemiah or concern for his own well-being. I would like to think he's showing a little touch of compassion, but that's just me. It says, I was very much afraid because displeasing the king, you know, when you do that, you have a tendency to lose your head or at least your life, either which way, whichever comes first, right? It's detrimental to your health. And Nehemiah was likely afraid because what he was about to do could easily be construed as disloyalty. It could be something that the king could view as, as an act against him and worthy to kill Nehemiah for, right? Because remember, earlier, Artaxerxes himself had declared a decree that the Jews should not be allowed to rebuild. And what is Nehemiah being called to do and about to ask permission to do? 
go and rebuild. So he's going to ask the king to change his mind and give them permission to do exactly what it is that he, the king had said earlier, don't let them do. Now, I want you to understand. We need to understand when we, when we talk about this. Persian kings did not consider themselves gods, right? There were some, like, like the Egyptians, where, oh, no, we are deity. You know, like, I'm a god. No, no, no. Persians didn't see themselves as gods. They didn't even really see themselves as demigods. But that would be a closer representation. See, they kind of saw themselves as an image of the divine. They were like a reflection, okay? Where They were considered an earthly representation of a deity. They were not a deity, but they were a close representation, an earthly representation of that. So people should be happy just to be in their presence. And so he's showing up sad. So he's showing up sad, and now he's scared, which makes sense. I would be. Most of us, I think, would be. Even the ones of us, the ones of us who say I wouldn't be probably would be the worst ones. Yeah, we'd probably be the most scared. It's okay. So three and four. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Okay, so he's announcing, it's not you. It's not you. Nothing against you. I Please don't kill me, right? <laughs> Right. So let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Listen to this last line. So I pray to the God of heaven. Okay. So let the king live forever. He's showing Artaxerxes respect. He's showing him and telling him, I'm not here to hurt you. There's nobody coming against you. I don't know of a plot. There's nothing crazy going on. Okay. I I want your success too. Okay, like let the king live. And he says says this and he gets to the point directly. Right after that saying it's not about you and he gets to the point but he does it without asking for a thing. And he explains what's going on. Right? And Artaxerxes hears it, understands it and recognizes that there's a request attached to this. And he gives him permission. See, it's kind of following like a a royalty formula, right? If you approach the king, you can approach with a problem. But if you approach with a problem, you better have a solution, right? You better have a solution. And so he does. He has a solution that's proud of what he's been doing and weighing and, and praying over and battling and wrestling with God about is what is the solution? What is the solution? What is the solution? How do we do this? And he's waited. And the king's pretty much sitting here going, all right, I, I, all right, what are you asking? Like, clearly you're going to ask something. What are you going to ask? And I want you to notice there's a theme beginning to develop with Nehemiah. God calls, he responds, and he responds in prayer. He prays about it. Now, when he says, I, I prayed, I, so I prayed to the God of heaven. This isn't another months later kind of a thing. Let me get back to you, oh, king. No, no, no. This is an in-the-moment God speak for me because I don't want to die. You know, it is a really, really quick in the moment kind of prayer, right? And he responds. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Uh, You said don't let this place be rebuilt, but um, please, (laughs) right? That's kind of what's going on. And then the king said to me, with the side note, the queen sitting beside him, which is kind of important. We'll get to that. How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Okay, so even the time frame was appropriate for the king. He was, he was fine with it, right? So Nehemiah is polite. 
and strategic, right? There's kind of a formula when you're, when you're dealing with people who are of a higher rank and a higher power than you, someone who can kill you without recourse. Um, and he follows this kind of nice pattern to get through to him and talk to him and follow God and let God work through this. And, and he goes through it. So he's polite, he's strategic, he's, he's still respecting the king, he's not throwing anything in his face, he's just letting him know, this is what's on my heart, this is what's going on, this is what God is giving me and telling me, and, and here you go. And he's polite, strategic, and this, this servant that he speaks of, okay, so he says, if it pleases the king and if you're your servant, again, this is the same Hebrew term, Ebed, which is uh, which was before, which is a man servant, it's a literal servant, right? So Artaxerxes approves, but notice that he says at, a, at with the queen by his side. So he might have had a glance at his queen, and and this is important because queens, you know, kings tend to like to keep their their queens somewhat happy, and so Nehemiah had two people to please. If if Artaxerxes was not pleased he's probably going to die. If Artaxerxes' queen was not pleased or smelled a fish or a rat, there's a good chance that Nehemiah was going to die, right? And so he had two people to please and God's hand was on him and it, and it worked, right? And it worked. Now, Artaxerxes, depending, depending on the mood, uh, he could have laughed, laughed at him, like, just give me my wine. It's fine. Just, it's fine. It's been like that for, since before you were born. It's been like that since before I was in power. It's been like that for a long time. Don't worry about it. Could have laughed. I could have ignored him. Just like, whatever. He could have executed him, you know, executed him. It could have been just, nah, off with your head. You know, you're going to be one of those rebel rousers. Be gone. We don't need a rebellion. And if the queen was displaced, it's the same thing. But see, God granted Nehemiah favor throughout this. God granted him favor. Let's look at Psalm 5. Uh, verse 12, for the blessed, <clears throat> excuse me, for you bless the righteousness, O Lord. Wow. Let's try that one more time. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So, sorry, this, I think it's the light. I don't know. My eyes are, keep looking at things and they get fuzzy. Not a, not a can't see through glasses fuzzy, like a, it's bright in here fuzzy to get the, the lighting right. Anyway. So, yeah, so God granted him favor and he protected him, okay? Then we see in 7, 8, and, the, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, wait, 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 there's more? He's letting you go and rebuild. Now you're getting gutsy, right? Why? Because God's telling him to get gutsy. Like, no, they're going to provide for you. Like, it's, again, this isn't in the scripture. We don't see this. We don't see um, where where God spoke to him. Nehemiah had not, in his memoirs that, that the um, uh, chronicler put together here, he didn't put in here and say, and God said to me, like you would see with a prophet. No, it's just, you can tell he's living the life and you can tell he wrestled with it. He wrestled with it. Most people would not push beyond this. This had to have been something to where God had really put on him. The king is going to provide for this. You need to ask him for the stuff because he's going to provide for you. He's going to protect you and he's going to provide for you. So go. Be bold, be bold in this, right? And so Nehemiah does, he gets bold. And I said, the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river. So when we get past your normal protection area, it's still your area, right? Or even when it's beyond your area, but it's not, it's all in your area. So 
please give me letters that says, we have your blessings to go so that no one harms us, okay? That they may let us pass, let, let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. We don't know exactly which forest, but there were uh, more forests in the, area, <laughs> in the area at the time than there are today. Uh, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, because the actual temple had a, like a little fortress, a little wall around it, and had uh, little turrets and things to protect the, the temple, okay? Uh, to protect the f- fortress of the temple. And for the wall of the city, most likely the like around the gates, again, because the wall would be, uh, the wall would be primarily made of stone. It's a little harder, harder and sturdier, but the gate area still had to have uh, wood framing and, and wood around it. So uh, for that, Okay, and for the house that I shall occupy, because he's going to be there for a while, right? We already know it takes four months to get there, four months back. That's already at minimum eight months round trip, right? And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. It gets bold. He asks for safe travel. He asks for wood, lumber for the rebuilding project. Hey, I know you said this place shouldn't be rebuilt, but... Did you give me wood so that we can rebuild? <laughs> I mean, some of it, it's, it's laughable. Like who does this? Who asks these things? This is crazy. And yet he gets it. He gets it. He says, uh, uh, let me, give me, give me lumber so we can rebuild the protection for the temple of our God. Give me lumber so that we can rebuild the wall of the city. Directly says that. And how about, how about uh, lumber for my house? Could you build me a house too, please, King? And he does it. He grants all of it. And he recognizes, Nehemiah recognizes, it's all because for the good hand of my God was upon me. God was in it. God had told me to do this. I obeyed. I followed God. I followed God's call. I followed God's direction and blessings flowed through. Not only did I not die, but I have protection as I go and I have all the lumber. I have all the material, everything. We're good. Now see the Jews in Persia had been pretty good to Persia. They're good at a lot of different things and they were good for Persia and they were good to Persia. And Artaxerxes had been fairly lenient in granting things that they had requested. So it's not like we have a giant total uh, tyrant that's, that's going in for all of this stuff, okay? Or, you know, somebody going towards a tyrant for this. Um, no, it's it's not quite to that degree, but still, this is a risky thing. Even going to somebody who's usually nice, uh, this person did flat out decree. These people, do not let these people rebuild this city. And he's going in directly asking, uh, can we rebuild this city now? And can you provide everything for it? So... Here we go. Let's look at this. Let's take a look at Ezra. We're going to be in Ezra chapter seven for a couple spots here. Ezra chapter seven, verse six, to see how Artaxerxes had handled some of this, right? How was he like? It says, this is Ezra. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel had given and the king granted him all that he asked. The king was Artaxerxes. The king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord, his God was on him. 21 to 24. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven requires you, let it be done with all diligence. 
up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or servants of this house of God. Now, I want to I, I point out, because I think it's important that we recognize a couple things. Two, we keep seeing this, this phrase, God of heaven. So when Jews are outside of Israel, because I'll usually say the God of Israel, right? So when they're outside of Israel, they tend to say God of heaven, meaning the God of all, like the God over all, right? That's just what they're saying. When they're when they're scattered around, they say God of heaven is the God of God of all. Now, Persians recognize or believe in multiple gods. They're they're polytheistic. They believe in a, a lot, a lot of different gods. So to them, the God of this people is just the God of this people. It's their God. It's okay. But they've heard the stories. They've seen some of the stuff that's happened. They are aware of some of the ways that these people have done things that seem completely supernatural because they they were supernatural. God intervened in miraculous ways and they know of these things. And so he's recognizing it and he's pretty well saying, don't take their God off. Like, you know, I we don't believe that he is the God, but, you know, hey, just don't take that God off because uh, clearly there's something going on there, right? He gives them at least enough respect for that. So it's good. But we need to recognize the God of heaven. We, we see God of heaven throughout a lot of this. Um, and that's just what that means. When they're outside of Jerusalem, when they're outside of Israel territory, they tend to say God of heaven as meaning the God overall, right? Okay. And it's the, the scattered at that point because this is, they're still... This is post-exile, but most of them are still exiled. They're still away. All right. So that was 7-8, right? We finished up 7-8. We're going into 9 and beyond. 9, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now, the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. He got an armed escort. Now, Ezra denied escort. Ezra denies this. Says, nah, I don't want it. Not, you're not taking, you're not sending me with people. It's just me. You know, I've got my people. We don't need army. Artaxerxes, it appears, would not allow Nehemiah to leave on his own accord. He had to have, so he had to have that escort. Not only does, I said, I'll just take letters. You know, give me letters. That's fine. No, I'll give you letters and I'll give you officers of the king's army. Nehemiah is important to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes and Nehemiah have a relationship. And I don't mean that in, in, a, in a 21st century style fashion. I mean, they, they have a connection with each other to where they communicate in a way they, Artaxerxes likes Nehemiah. It's apparent. Okay, you're reading between the lines, but it becomes apparent. If he didn't like Nehemiah, Nehemiah, one, would not be in that position. Two, would probably be dead. If he was just meh about Nehemiah, he probably would not have granted him permission for this. And if he didn't really like him, he definitely would not send an army with him. Okay, so we see Artaxerxes likes Nehemiah. Nehemiah is important, okay? So he protects him with an army. 10. But when Sanballat 
The, the Horonite, I know. It's okay. I laugh at myself about this too. And Tobiah the Ammonite servant. Now, servant here, servant to Sanballat, okay? Tobiah is Sanballat's servant, most likely uh, his scribe, like his secretary scribe and advisor. So it's not necessarily like a servant as in a slave, but like a, a governing official, like it's his next down, like it's somebody that is a trusted official underneath him. Okay. When they heard of this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So according to history, the things that we see outside of the scripture, because we can corroborate most of this outside of the scripture. Okay. According to history, Sam Ballot was the governor of Samaria with his homeland being Beth Horon, i.e. the Horonite. Tobiah was likely his advisor and, and or secretary. This is servant, like a servant official, an official. Okay, Tobiah, although this is a Jewish name, came from the Ammonites. We can see in Genesis uh, 1938. Now this is Lot's, Lot's younger daughter. Okay, because remember, Lot wasn't having kids and his daughters got him drunk. And one night, one laid with him. The next night, the younger daughter laid with him. Okay, anyway, um, so Lot's younger daughter, after getting him drunk and laying with him the biblical way, uh, the older daughter had Moab, father of the Moabites. Okay, then we have here, verse 38. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, or Ami, however that's pronounced. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Okay, so Lot's children had children with Lot, uh, anyway, so <laughs> there's uh, moments in the Bible, let's be honest. And uh, yeah, so he is the the father of the Ammonites. Okay, so we can actually track that, track that back. Anyway, um, this is a group that historically stood against the people of Israel. And it would appear that the Sumerians wanted to assert power in, the, in Judah and in that region. Okay, which isn't uncommon. That's not an uncommon theme. 11 and 12. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Pause. I, I want us to, to grasp the reality of Nehemiah in this and how patient and how understanding this man is. How much God has either worked in him or God has created just this crazy, amazing being. Okay, think about this. God's calling him and working on it. This is extra biblical. It's not in there. This is Drew's interpretation. Okay, so don't take this part as like full reference, right? But when we read this, it's very easy to see this is what's going on. God is working on Nehemiah and giving him a call and he's struggling with it going, no, 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 no. I'm not going, I can't do this. I'm sure the stuff back back home in, in, in Judea, in Jerusalem, I'm sure everything's fine. It's not nearly as bad as I think it is. And his brother comes. Now, we have no idea how long God had been working on him there, right? But his brother comes back, tells him, it's not only bad, it's worse than we thought. And he weeps and he mourns and he prays day and night for four months. Four months without showing any sign of anything to the people around him. Okay. The king didn't know. Nobody knew. For four months. Then he talks to the king, gets everything. Everything's fine. Everything's figured out. They get ready to go. How long before they leave? We don't know. They had to prepare. They had to get the lumber. They had to get the letters. They had to do all this other stuff. They had to prepare. That could have been a month. Could have been two months. It could have been another four months. It could have been a week. We don't know. But let's just guess and throw one month out there. It took a month. Let's just say it's a month. 
So four months, five months. We know it's a four-month journey to get to Jerusalem. That's nine months. It has been nine months. I don't know about you, but when God calls, I after the wrestling period is over and it's turned to, okay, I'm submitting to your will. I'm going to go do this. I get excited. Like, I want to go. I want to do. Like, let's just get in there and get it done. And he gets there and he stays for three days. He takes three days, partially, I'm sure, to rest. And a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the commentaries say that. You know, hey, it's a long journey. He needed to rest. He took three days off. If you look at Ezra, Ezra, you know, also took three days, which was kind of an interesting thing, right? Ezra also took three days. In fact, we see that. It's a note we have here, 832. Uh, Ezra 832. We came into Jerusalem, and there we remained for three days. Ezra also took three days. Okay? It might just be to take time. It might be a little bit more of a a cultural custom to catch up with the people. Uh, But he waited, and he rested for three days. At least eight months, if not nine or ten or twelve months in. And he waits three days. Verse 12, then I arose in the night and I had a few men with me, just a few. Okay, just a few. He's being very secretive. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. He was trying to be quiet, right? He's being stealthy. He needed to be able to move fast. So he needed a horse, but he needed everyone else quiet. So he was the only one that got one. So if he had to flee, bam, he could gallop and trot away. I know horsing terms, but I know those weren't right. That's okay. (laughs) Anyway, so Nehemiah had an armed escort and also a large load of lumber. So we know that it took extra time to get there. But while he's there, he gets up at the night. Now he keeps his cards close to his chest, right? He's being secretive. And when he finally does go out to inspect what's going on, he does it under the cover of nightfall. And with just a few men, because I'm sure the army said, no, you can't go anywhere without us. So he probably just took three or four, maybe four or five guys. And he was the only one on a horse to keep it quiet. And he went and he inspected. Now, here's a, a nice image. This is actually a, it's a picture I took outside of one of my uh, commentaries and one of my study Bibles that I'm using. I think this one was actually out of one of my study Bibles, not a commentary, but it's study Bibles or commentaries built into them. So Uh, 13 to 15. So I went out by night by the valley gate. Now I can't, I don't know if, uh, if I put a cursor. Yeah. It looks like you guys get my cursor. Okay, cool. So, uh, valley gate is right here. This is the valley gate. Okay. You have the temple mount up at the top, go down about halfway down and you have the valley gate. Okay. So it goes out on the back end up back towards the valley. Okay. So it goes out by the valley gate. Where am I? Went out by night by the valley gate and went to the dragon spring and the dung gate. Now the dung dung gate comes all the way down here. Okay. Dragon spring. um, Historians believe, in fact, I have a note here. The dragon spring is likely a well or a spring that has long since dried up. But historians do believe that there may have been an earthquake that made it rise. Hence the name dragon. Okay. Now went out by the dragon spring, which is down here, probably by the, the dung gate. Okay. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had actually been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate, which is just up cross over here. You get the fountain gate right here. Went to the fountain gate. Here we go. And to the king's pool, 
but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Now the king's pool, because there's the pool of Salome over here, there's other pools and the king's pool was was just another one of the pools. It was more of a, a man-made pool, kind of like a retreat spa kind of a thing. Uh, reserved, but it's, it was a nice area. Anyway, then I went up, uh, but there was no room for the animal under me that was to, to pass. So things were so bad. There was so much debris, so much rubble and things around. He couldn't get the horse through there. So he either didn't actually go and see it or he had to get off of his horse and go by foot to go and see it. Doesn't really say he's kind of vague, but that's okay. Then I went up by in the night by the valley so he went back up again here, back around on this side because he left on the valley gate. So keeping on the same side and he comes up by the valley and inspects the wall and he comes up and he probably comes over because this is all kind of valley area, right? And he probably comes up and, and inspects the wall up all the way through. It doesn't say up to what gates or anything, just inspects the wall. And then he turns back. So he had to pass the valley gate because he comes back in through the valley gate over here and he enters again through the valley gate. Okay, so that's that's where and how and, and all that jazz. Okay, 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were there to do the work. So no one knew where he was going. No one knew where he went. No one knew why they were there, really. Nobody knew what was going on except perhaps a few that were allowed to go with Nehemiah that night. Nobody knew what he, where he went or what he did. Again, he's playing those cards close to his chest. Okay, keeping it quiet. Waiting for the proper time. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Okay, Check this out. I love how Nehemiah does that. We should learn so much in practical form of when God calls us in our lives, we should learn so much from Nehemiah. It's astounding. It is astounding. We need to read and study this stuff, guys. Look at this. He has no problem waiting. Okay, I'm sure he does. He wrestled and, and weeped and mourned and he's human, right? I'm sure he didn't like this, but he waited. He did it. He submitted himself to the process. God calls him to a process. He submits himself to God and to the process in which God's called him. And it's good. Now watch this. Remember, one month before showing emotion to the king, four months on the ride to Jerusalem. So, okay, four months, one month before showing emotion to the king. No, four months before showing emotion to the king. I'm sorry, that's a typo. Four months before showing emotion to the king. Four months ride to Jerusalem. Three days before going and actually inspecting the walls. And then what does he do? He lays down a plan. He lays down a plan. You, now notice he says, you, we, us. You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. You, we, us, we. This isn't me. God didn't just call me. God just called all of us. He's inclusive. He lays down a vision. Recognize the problem. Look at what he says. Listen to how he motivates these people. This is amazing. Look at this. Learn from this when you're trying to motivate you see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Problem. He announces and declares, here's the problem. 
Trouble, we are in. Lies and ruins, gates burned. Solution. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer repeat the problem. Suffer derision. We're no longer mocked. We're no longer the mockery. Okay? Nehemiah declares the mission, and it's not just for him. He's motivating the people. Let's go and let's do this. Now, the suffer derision, let's take a look at Jeremiah 24.9. I will make them abhorrent and an offense to all the kingdoms of the earth, a reproach and a byword, a curse, and an object of ridicule wherever I banish them. That is a direct thing. That's what they're talking about. Okay, that's what Nehemiah is talking about. Let's stop being this. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Okay, pause. Problem, solution, repeat the problem. Here's why. Okay, issue, resolution, because of the issue, means. Like, this is how it came about. This is why we need to do this. And he goes in and he declares how the good hand of my God has been upon me. He told them, here's the story. This is why God put this on me. And then I heard this. And then I, I weeped and mourned and I was afraid. And I said, no, I can't go in front of the king and do this. But when the king should have killed me because he decreed that this land should never be rebuilt, not only did he say, yes, go and rebuild, he told me he wants me to come back. And then I asked him for, uh, you know, I asked him to make sure that we made it here safe. And not only did he grant us letters, he sent us an army to protect us. And I asked him for a lumber and he gave it to us. He gave us what we need to not only get here safely, but to rebuild. Okay. So he tells them of the things that, that God had said, and he told them what the king had said. Now, the hand of my God, we, we notice this, this is a, a common theme throughout uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. We've seen it, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 8. If you go back to Ezra, chapter 7, 6, 7, 9, uh, 7, 28, 8, 18, 8, 22, 8, 31. It's a common theme. The hand of God being with them and being in this, Okay. The theme is God can change things. We need to return to him. That is the theme that they're going for, right? We need to return to God. God can change things. God wants to change things. Let's return to God. Okay? That's what's being said. Let's return to God so God can change this. He's waiting on us. It's not that God needs us to do it. No, he's just waiting on us because he wants us to want him. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant of Sambalat and Geshem the Arab heard of it, the, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, we already know Sambalat and Tobiah didn't like the idea. They didn't like Nehemiah going and doing this. And now, they're first of all, they're adding Geshem, but they're adding to this that there is an allegation that they're rebelling against King Artaxerxes because they're not stupid. They know Artaxerxes was already worried about the Jews rebelling. That's why 
they had kind of uh, encouraged him to not let them rebuild. And he said, yeah, you guys are right. Don't let them rebuild. This is bad. This is a bad thing. Okay. So our Artaxerxes was already leery of this and they're just trying to reinforce that leeriness, right? He has a reason to be leery for you people. You guys are bad news. But Artaxerxes trusted Nehemiah. God put Nehemiah where he wanted him for a reason. Artaxerxes trusted Nehemiah. Okay. He trusted Nehemiah. And Nehemiah knows that deceiving the king would likely mean death. Now we're, we're adding Geshem the Arab into this. Uh, he's potentially from Cedar. And I know I'm probably butchering all of these. It's fun. All right. Uh, who had settled close to Judah. Okay. Uh, we see this in Isaiah chapter 21, verses 16 and 17. For thus, the Lord said to me within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Cedar will come to an end and, and the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Cedar will be few for the Lord, the God of Israel has spoken. So he's likely from there. Now you can see just because of that, you can, you can tell people, the Arabs from that region don't like the Jews. Okay. So he's also not happy with this. 20. Look at how he replies. This is, again, another thing that we should learn. Another thing that we should learn from Nehemiah. I replied to them, the God of heaven, God will make us prosper. He and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, no right, and no claim in Jerusalem. So he already knows Artaxerxes on his side because of all the stuff he's done for him, right? He already knows Artaxerxes on his side. Not only did he allow him to go, he sent him with an armed escort and provided the lumber for the rebuilding process. He has the king's blessings. But even knowing all of that, Nehemiah actually gives credit where credit is due. And he gives it to God rather than to the king because he shows where his true authority lies and his authority or his, where his, um, Wow, well, I just lost what I was trying to say. Uh, shows where who he gives his authority to or where, where he uh, shows his respect and his, who he takes authority from, I suppose I should say. Anyway, uh, he says he gets it from God. Shows where his allegiance, there we go, that's the word. It's on the screen, Drew, look at the screen. Shows where his allegiance lies, right? Yes, he falls under the King Artaxerxes, but his true allegiance lies with God. Okay. And he says, the God of heaven, our God will make us prosper. This is not prosperity gospel people. This is not, he's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. No. Okay. No, that is nowhere in scripture anywhere whatsoever. That is a fallacy saying God will, God's hand is in this. He's going to make this work. The prosper is in God's accord. And even as Christians looking at that, when we say prosper, even if it's not necessarily riches in this life, what we would think of, he's making us prosper because we are, uh, we are adopted children of God with firstborn inheritance rights. We get God. We get everything that is God's. We get heaven. How much more wealthy is that? It's not about the earthly riches. And how much in the Bible do we see that it is not about the earthly riches? Get over the earthly riches. Is it nice and helpful here? Sure. But if you're not the right type of person who can handle that properly, it's more of a curse than a blessing. 
So just be careful with that, right? The God of heaven will make us prosper. He will make this situation work. And his servants will arise and build. Like we're going to follow God. He's going to make this work. So you know what? We're going to do our part. Whereas God could speak it and be done. He's working through us and we are going to rise up and do our part and do our job and rebuild this city. And then he declares, you have no right, no portion, nor claim in Jerusalem. Think of that in, in, in Christian terms today, speaking to like the antichrist or the spirit of the antichrist, right? The demonic forces or, or people who are completely against the kingdom of God. Yeah. God's in this. He's going to make it work. And we're going to do our part. We're going to step up and we're going to do our part. We're going to do what we need to do because God's in this. God's calling us to do this. You have no right to this. You have no claim to this. You're not in God's kingdom. You have no claim to this. Back off. Behind me, Satan. Right? That would be, that would be the modern Christian equivalent to that and what we see in that. Okay. Now we see in this writer claim, we see in Joshua 18, five, they shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall come in his territory on the South and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory to the North. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for, for you here before the Lord, our God He's saying, we already know whose land, what land belongs to whom and none of it belongs to you. None of it. You have no right, no claim, no call to this. That's what he says directly. Okay. Move on. Wrap this up. Okay. Gospel. Where's the gospel in this? Right? Because it is, it is right. Whenever we go to the old Testament, it's in light of the new Testament, right? It's a, it's a precursor. It's showing the gospel. It's showing Christ. It's showing the need of Christ throughout. Okay. First of all, we see Nehemiah shows us the blending of God's sovereignty in our works. Like his sovereignty and our works are part, right? It's a blending. God is sovereign. God is in this, but we still have to act, right? God still calls us to act. We see that in verse chapter one, verse four, chapter two, verse four, and chapter two, verse 20. We also see that when God shows favor, we are to respond in wholehearted service. The response to God's favor is to serve God, right? The response to God's love is to love him in return. So when God responds this way, we, we serve, we work out, right? To have prayer, to have preparation, like the nighttime inspection and sharing the plan at the right time with the right people. And then eventually, yes, getting to work. Okay. The God of heaven will make us, this is a quote, right? Verse chapter two, verse 20, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants will arise and build. This is the pattern of the gospel. God acts in mercy. We respond out of a transformed heart. Did you think of that when you read that, when we were on that, this is a, the, the pattern of the gospel. We're screwed up. God responds in mercy and we respond back out of a transformed heart. Finally, there's an illustration of the coming hope as God being and working in and through Israel. Okay, because John 1, 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Okay, we see this is an illustration of Christ coming through and out of 
Israel. Okay, coming from the Jews, right? All right, takeaway. What can we learn from this? When God calls, he gives strength and courage. Do not give way to fear, but act courageously. We need to be bold in this, right? This, is an, this entire chapter is all about being bold. Trust God. If he is in it, if he's in it, wow, that was written. If he is in it, anyway, he is in it and is already working on the hearts of those who are involved, okay? Like when we see going to Artaxerxes, okay? Artaxerxes was not a follower of, of God, but God was already working on him, making sure that things were going to work out, right? God's hand was in it. God's in it. He's already working on the people who need to be worked on, okay? Wait for the right time to speak and act. That's the hard part, I think, for so many of us. We need to wait for the right time. Got to wait. Wait for it, okay? God's not slow like we think he's slow, right? He's got a purpose and a plan for that. We need to wait for that proper time. If God says wait, we wait. Because the enemy searches for any weak spot, okay? The enemy searches for any weak spot. So don't give the enemy both physical, spiritual, okay? The energy and the credit. They have no claim on what God is doing, right? They have no claim in God's kingdom. They have no claim in, the, in what God is doing in our lives, right? Let's pray. God, I want to thank you. Thank you so much for today. I want to thank you for your word, for Nehemiah, for showing us being bold when you call, wading through the process, showing us that when you're in it, you're in it, and you're going to provide and protect and take care of the people who are being called by you to do these things. And I ask that, that you work through us, and that you bless us, and you give us the courage that we need to do and act and respond in the calls that you're giving us. And I also want to lift up, know a few people who uh, I personally know, some people who, who have COVID right now. I ask that you be with them, that you bless them, that you comfort them, and that your, that your spirit of healing be upon them, Lord. You touch them, you heal them, and you protect them. God, I also want to pray for our government um, coming into an election season. Not something I usually bring up here on Sip and Study, but... Uh, we are called to pray for our government. You tell us we should be praying for our government. Not only that, even our enemies. We are to be praying for our enemies. God, so I, I lift them up and we lift them up. God, be with them, bless them. Um, I know uh, our president and his wife right now, they, they have both contracted COVID as well. So be with them, heal them. Father, take care of our nation, but also take care of the world. God, we ask that you be involved in this and that you don't turn your back. You help us turn ours towards you. Help us turn ourselves back to you again. God, be with us and, and continue to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, thank you guys so much for, for being here. We hope you have a great weekend and uh, we will see you next week. All right, God bless everybody. 